Well, it's great to be here with you. It's been a while since I've been in this church, probably about 12 years, I think, since I was last here. Um, we moved to the States about 10 years ago, and, and uh, as I took on the international leadership of Youth for Christ, and their headquarters is in Denver. So we moved there with our son, our youngest child, our son. He's still there. He married an American girl, and we have a granddaughter in the States. A bit of a problem. Um, we're trying to get them back over here, and we'll get them here eventually. And, and uh, then we've got two daughters here. And Jenny sends her greetings and her apologies for not being here. One of the reasons she isn't here is that she had to take our middle daughter, Tracy, to the airport. She's a paediatrician, and she's currently on placement in uh, Alice Springs, and so she was flying back there. And then she's got a concert that she needs to go to with our granddaughters performing in, in gymnastics. And we promised our kids... Our grandkids, after missing 10 years of being there for them, that we're going to be there for them. So I'm sure that you understand why Jenny's not here. Um, and hopefully they'll have a great time. And, I, you know, I'm not too disappointed that you invited me to be here because those concerts. <laughs> <laughs> wow, all these little girls running around. <laughs> uh, yeah, as John shared with those insightful questions, that he came up with very good questions, John. Um, oh, I was involved in, uh, Jenny and I were both involved in leadership in a, in a church, in a, in a Christian Brethren church or a Christian community church's church um, down in Notting Hill. We just got back from being in uh, the Western Australia and working with all these kids who were really on the edge of society, really marginalised and having very challenging lives and we'd invested in them. We actually love young people and um, and wanted to continue to do ministry and serve people, and so we got involved in this local church. And, uh, you know, we're still in our 20s. We didn't have a clue how you meant to be a pastor. I mean, I, what, what does a pastor do? So um, I decided that I'd try and find out what the needs were in the society and around us in the community, and so I went and visited every house in our little estate, all, all around the whole church, and visited every house, knocked on the door, said, Hi, um, I'm David. I'm from the local church. I'm a new pastor there. Uh, can I have, come and have a chat? And... and they didn't call the police in those days, you know. They actually let you come in and gave you a cup of tea and uh, had a chat with them and this is what I'd say to them. I believe the local church exists to serve you. How can we serve you? It's simple. And I kept getting answers um, of various kinds, you know, about some of these. But as you delved a little deeper, the demographic at the time were, were a lot of young family, younger families with kids who were turning into teenagers and, um, you know, that's a horrific time of family life and... And they were struggling with all that, and they were saying, look, you know, if you want to help us, help our kids. My son's involved in a gang. There was a big gang in the area. And, uh, can you get down to the local high school? There's a real mess down there. There's all kinds of problems. Can you go there and help them out? Um, well, my daughter's just, you know, she's just a loose end, and you know, you're going to do a youth group or something, you know, can, can you do something like that? And so I've got all these, from all these families. So I came back to the leadership of the church and said, you know what we need to do? We need to have a youth-focused church because that's what the need in the community is. And that's what that's the opportunity we have to bless this community. Um, so we did. So we got a few young people that we had together and, um, and I said to them, you know what, um, I can't reach your friends, but you can. So how about you commit to full-time ministry and you can do school on the side, but you know, I want you to, to pray about that. And they did. They prayed for three weeks and came back and not all of them said yes, but a lot of them did. So I said, all right, well, you're in charge. 
You tell us what you want to do. You come up with ways in which we can reach your friends, we can engage, build relationships. And they did. They came up with some pretty wild ideas. Um, and one of those was, well, you know what? We can't expect our friends to come to a church. They're not going to come to a church. No matter what we do here, they're not going to come. But there's this local community hall, and uh, and I think they'd come there. We think they'd come there. And so how about we have a live band coffee shop uh, You know, every... I think it was we were doing it every two weeks um, on a Friday night, and and we reckon they'll come to that. So we did. We went out, and I went out with a bunch of young people who knew what they were doing, and they were in bands and things. And we bought some equipment, and I saw the speakers, and I thought, oh, we'll get these these little ones. You know, it's not a big no. We had to get it's all front of house in those days. You didn't have the fancy systems, the digital boards, and everything. We had to get the speakers. It took four people to lift. You know. And then uh, all these desk things, and then, of course, we had chases, uh, which made the lights flash to the time of the music and uh, all the cans and stuff. In those days, it was quite exciting, you know, to try and put all that equipment together and not burn the place down. But we, we had all this stuff. And, uh, and then we planned out what we were going to do. We got little tables and, you know, put candles around. Um, I know it sounds really corny, young people. But in those days, it was pretty cool. And we did these, you know, we even got a smoke machine. And it was just super-duper cool, you know. And so we got all this stuff. We set it all up. And, and I was getting involved in local high school then. <clears throat> I'd actually completed a master's degree in clinical counselling. And so I, I had some stuff I could offer to the school. <clears throat> and, uh, and so we were engaged in the school. And we were talking about it. And all these kids were talking about it. And so we had the first night. And we turn up. Well, I turned up after going up there in the afternoon and setting it all up. And there was just young people everywhere, hundreds of them, all over the place. And I thought, this is so great. I'm going to meet all these kids, you know, because they, they said, oh, you know, we need to introduce you to him. You get to know him and then, you know, and then you can tell them about Jesus. And I said, no, that's not how it works. You tell them about Jesus. But no, so that was the idea. Well, you know, I go inside and, you know, it was, the program's meant to start and we had this really great band, a bunch of committed Christians who were a pub band that was known in the area and, you know, they were there and they were all set up and the smoke was going, the lights were going and then they started. And it was like the whole of my inside organs were rearranged by the music, you know. It was that boom. And it was just, and I, so I thought, oh, well, I better go and meet some of these kids. So I go over and I said to one of them, hi, how are you going? Uh huh. You know, so I was actually standing right next to the ear saying, Hi, what's your name? And they go, what? And so eventually I found out somebody's name. But then they had to tell me, I, I wanted to tell them something else, you know. So we were yelling in each other's ears and I was trying to do that. And, and then I got to sort of just to know a name. And then I went and tried to meet another one. And, and I'm thinking, this is an absolute disaster. You know, the idea was we get all these kids together, we do this thing, so I can get to meet them and I can have a conversation with them, you know, and that was to get to know them, all that sort of stuff, and this was not working. And after about half an hour of that, I thought I'll go outside and try and recover and get my organs back to where they should be and see if I can get some of my hearing back. And I walked outside and there was more kids outside than there was inside. They weren't allowed to smoke inside, so they were all outside smoking. And I went around and I started chatting to them. I started getting to know them and I didn't have to yell at them. And, uh, and so I was having a chat to these kids and there's this girl over the side, her name was, I went over and said, oh, hi, you know, she said, I'm Julie. And so I talked to her a bit and got to know, you know, I just hung out outside most of the night, got to know these kids. That was really great. 
So it came time to pack up and we were packing up and all the kids went and we were putting the last stuff, of the last bit of the equipment into the trailer and I look over and here's Julie, this girl Julie I met earlier and she's sitting on the edge of the car park in the gutter. So I walk over to her and say, Julie, we're finished, <laughs> time to go home. <clears throat> and uh, you know, it's all over and uh, it's after 12, you know, so you best go home. Oh, I can't go home, she says. I go, well, well why can't you go home? She said, well, my dad gets drunk on the weekend and he beats me up, so I can't go home on the weekends. Uh, I go, well, what are you going to do? She said, I'll just hang out around here for a bit till you go and then I'll go find somewhere else to hang out. And, and uh, I'm going, you know, this was not how it's meant to work. We have the program, <clears throat> all the kids turn up, we go flat out through the week, we get all organised, we have the program, the kids turn up, we have a great time, I get to know them, they go home, I go home and have a good night's sleep, what's left of it, and then the next day I get up and try and recover so I'm ready for Sunday. And this girl is messing that up. Here she is and I've got the problem here. Now that very morning I'd read these verses, these verses in my quiet time, my time with Jesus. James 2 verse 15 and 17, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and if one of you says to him go I wish you well keep warm and well fed but does nothing about his physical needs what good is it in the same way faith by itself it is not if it is not accompanied by action is dead I read those words that morning I remembered every one of those words and here I am with this girl and I knew what Jesus was telling me to do and I didn't want to do it uh, I said to Julie, Julie, you know what? We, we haven't got a spare room at our house, but we've got a lounge room floor and we've got a blow-up mattress. If you want to come back, and uh, you can stay at our place tonight and we'll see what we can do about sorting out a place for you to stay more long-term. And the look of relief on her face was palpable. And she said, oh, are, you, are you sure? I said, yeah, no problem. So I in the car with all the others and... Off we went and dropped the stuff off and the kids off and I went back home and woke Jenny up in the middle of the night. Hey, Jenny, look, here's Julie. She's staying with us tonight. Really? <laughs> Jenny's like, what? She's not very good when you wake her up, so I don't think she even knew what was going on. I said, oh, we blow up the mattress, you know. And So we did and she stayed the night and then she stayed another night. She stayed quite some time with us and then we found a much more suitable long-term placement for her. And when we found her story, it was just horrific what was going on. She needed, she needed to encounter the kingdom of God. And she did. So that night, Julie encountered the kingdom of God and met her at a point of need. And she experienced the kingdom, the blessing of the kingdom. And she became a believer a couple of months after that and was engaged in our community at Notting Hill for quite some time. When Jesus um, was asked by his disciples, uh, you know, can you teach us how to pray? He, he said this. Well, if you're going to pray, or actually when you pray, he said. So it wasn't like, well, should we pray or not? It was, he assumed that we were going to pray. You know. So when you pray, this is what you should say. First of all, acknowledge God's sovereignty, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Acknowledge God's sovereignty. God's in charge. First thing, acknowledge 
that he is Lord. Hello be your name. And then pray that, pray your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that my kingdom will come and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, you know, these disciples had said to Jesus, Jesus, you know, how should we pray? And he actually told them more about it. It was more about what to pray for than how to pray. It was an imperative. I believe the Lord's Prayer is an imperative. We go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, what do you want us to pray about? And he says, this is what I want you to pray about. Then surely that's what he wants to happen. So it's, it's an imperative. His imperative is that his, his will will be done on earth, that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the imperative he's given us. So if we're meant to pray that, then surely we're meant to live it. And so if we take that as Jesus' instructions to us, what we, what we agonise over, what we pray for, what we long for, that we, what we work towards, then, then we've got to ask the next question is, what does it look like then if the kingdom would come? What does it look like? Jesus constantly was saying, throughout the Gospels you read, the kingdom is near, the kingdom's come, the kingdom's, I've come to bring the kingdom, it's all about the kingdom. So what does it look like or what should it look like if the kingdom truly comes in somebody's life? If the kingdom comes in the world? Where the kingdom is coming in the world, what should we see? What should we see happening? What should be there? And if the kingdom came in a church or if the kingdom was coming in a church or God's will was being done in a church, what would the church look like? I believe there's this thing um, called cultural Christianity, which I think is one of the greatest impediments to the kingdom. And it's not the kingdom. I'm going to tell you a story about a young man. He was uh, in England and 17-year-old, some years back, quite a few years back, walking down the street of London and he found this little pamphlet on the ground and picked it up and it was uh, just a simple gospel message. It was, it was how to be a follower of Jesus, how to become a Christian. And so he read that through and, oh, yeah, okay, I think I want to do that. So he did it without any intervention apart from the Holy Spirit of no human intervention except I guess they, somebody wrote the thing and put it there and so he, he did it. He said, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. This all makes sense. This is what I've been looking for. And then he noticed that uh, there was a church down the road because he said, I'm going to find out more about this and they were advertising this convention that they were having and a guy called George Muller was speaking. George Muller was one of the founders of this church movement that we're part of. And he's renowned for his orphanages and his mission work and everything else. And he was speaking, so, so this young man went to the church and was in that, that convention and listened to this guy speak. And George Muller said, I'm doing all I can for the orphans of this city and, and I'm doing mission work and everything else. And he said, but there is, there is millions of people in China that don't know about Jesus and they need to know. Somebody needs to go and tell them, I can't do anymore. So this young man came up to George Muller afterwards and said, Mr Muller, I'll go and do that for you. I'll go and tell all the people in China about Jesus. He said, okay. George Muller said, well, what's your name? Young man. And he said, my name's James Hudson Taylor. And George said, well, fantastic. I'll help you to do that. Instead of saying, you're a young idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, how can you go over there, you're naive, you know, all that. I, I just... For my, most of my ministry life, I've been involved with young people and I love their healthy naivety. They don't know what you can't do. They don't know what you're not meant to do. They just respond 
naturally to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen young people all over the world. I could tell you stories all day about young people who have just done amazing things in this world because they haven't been restricted from following their dreams. They haven't been told, oh, you're not leaders for the day, you're leaders for the future. That's another message that maybe I'll come and share with you one day if I don't get um, too, too offline, you know, here today. So, uh, Hudson Taylor was encouraged by George Muller. And he started to think about what do I need to do? And he asked questions and, and he explored what does it look like to be a missionary? And, um, and he worked out, well, I'm going to first of all I have to learn the language. So he found somebody to teach him Mandarin. So he started learning Mandarin. And he said, well, you know, I also need to know the Bible. I need to know, know God's word. So, I'll, so he studied Greek and Hebrew and Latin because in those days there was a lot of books in Latin that you needed to read and apparently that was the language of theology. And so um, for me it was the language of horticulture, but it was a language of theology in those days. And so he had to learn that. And then he thought, oh, I've got to do something for these people. I've got to do something practical for these people. It would be great if I could be a doctor. So he studied medicine as well. At the age of 21, he completed all his studies. He was a doctor, he was fluent in Mandarin, and he had, he had the languages of the Bible down, and he was studying the Bible. And he headed off, well, he got ready to head off, and he was also told, well, you need to become part of a mission society. So he did. He joined a mission society, and he said, what do I meant to do? And they had to teach him as well, you know, how you do missionary stuff. And so he went to them, and they said, well, what you've got to do is you go over there and you meet all these heathen, these pagan people. Well, then you've got to convert them to Christianity. And you'll know that's happened when they, they say all these words and they do all this and, uh, well, you need to teach them English so they can read the Bible. Uh, you know, they got to learn to read the Bible in English. That's one of the things you have to do. And then when they become Christians, they stop being pagans. So they've got to stop dressing like pagans and start to look like Christians. And so you, you know, they need to dress in suits and a tie like us and that's how they've got to dress. And then here's the plan for the church that you need to build. You need to build a church and it needs to have a steeple out the front with a cross on it and needs to have a little foyer bit, and then you've got to have this place up there that you speak at, and then you get the books all over there, and you get them singing the, the chorus, of the, 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 sorry, the hymns in the... And, and once you've done that, and they're all in there, and they're all dressed like us, and they're in your church, you have done it. You've been successful as a missionary. Okay, so off he went. For two years he tried to do that. He sailed across there, he ended up over in China, and for two years he tried to do what this mission society had told him he needed to do, convert these pagans. And he was unsuccessful. And then a big fire swept through the area that he lived in and it burnt all of his stuff. He lost everything. And then, of course, when a fire goes through and destroys everything, you don't have access to clean water. And he started getting really sick. He got very, very sick. He had nothing, had no one. And he was in desperate need. And he went to a local Chinese family who he got to know and he said, I need your help. And they took him in. They cared for him. They got him well again. And they said, well, why on earth did you come here? You, you know, <laughs> you obviously don't fit in. And, uh, you know, what do you, we don't even get why you're here. And he said, well, look, I, you know, I just thought I'd, I should come here because I follow Jesus and I just wanted to share Jesus with people. Who's Jesus? So he told them who Jesus was. Just shared his life, shared his story about Jesus. And they said... They said, can we be a follower of Jesus? Can we be Christians? He said, sure. Okay. So they became, as a family, they gave their life to Jesus. And they said, can we invite our other family members and our friends over? Can you tell them about Jesus as well? Sure, I'll do that. 
He did. And um, I've got a picture of Hudson Taylor, I think, in my spine. There he is. That's what he looked like. That's what he looked like when he was ready to go. And this is what he looked like. I haven't got one of those buttons. Oh, there. That's what he looked like after he had to live with them and he didn't have any more clothes or anything. So he dressed like that and he had a long pigtail down the back and a little moustache and he was just completely immersed in the culture. And then the Mission Society sent some people over to check up on him because they hadn't heard from him in quite a while. And they came and they were horrified. They were absolutely horrified of what's happened to... And you know what? They wrote this big report and they said, Hudson Taylor has gone native. That's what they said in the report. We've got to bring him home. And they try to bring him home. He said, you've got to come home. You know, we've got to re-educate you. You know, <laughs> you've obviously lost the plot here. You've actually become a pagan. You're meant to convert these pagans. And so we've got to fix you. And he said, I'm not coming home. And they said, well, we'll disown you if you don't. And he said, go ahead. The best thing that could have happened to him. He was completely free to do ministry in the way that it was appropriate to do ministry. He became the father of cross-cultural ministry. And he went back to England eventually and he started sharing his story and, and he started asking people to join him. And he had all these single women come to him and said, oh, Hudson, uh, we've always wanted to do ministry and mission, but the mission societies don't want us because we're single. We've got to get husbands and we can't get husbands, so we're, we can't do mission and we feel called to it. Would you take us? He said, sure. I've got no rules like that. And he started recruiting all these single women to come to China and he recruited families and, and he ended up recruiting 800 new missionaries to come to China. And he formed this thing called the China Inland Mission. And in his lifetime it said that Hudson Taylor personally was responsible for the salvation, for the, for the winning into the kingdom of over 30,000 Chinese people. And what he built there became the foundation of the current Chinese church. And because of Hudson Taylor and his understanding of what the kingdom was about and living the kingdom, because of that, there are hundreds of millions of people in God's kingdom today. Hundreds of millions. Now what Hudson Taylor experienced was a clash. A clash between cultural Christianity and the kingdom. And cultural Christianity was the biggest impediment to him doing what God had called him to do. And I believe this is what we experience today. We, we enculture the kingdom. And you'll notice that because when we say that people need to be part of a church and, um, and we want them to become Christians, then there's certain things that have to happen for them, aren't there? First of all, they have to believe. Well, they absolutely do. But often what they have to believe in is a set of precepts, as ideology. It's a whole lot of theology, actually. They've got to believe in the whole Bible, don't they? I mean, how can they become a Christian if they don't believe in the whole Bible? It's a prescribed, prescribed set of doctrinal and theological precepts that they have to believe in. We as a church have it all worked out. And so that's what people have to believe in. They've got to believe in all these things that we believe in. Now, probably you're sitting there going, well, what's wrong with that? Then, after that's happened, they have to behave. They can't be part of a church unless they behave in a certain way. They can't, they can't be part of a community if they're still behaving in the way that pagans behave. You know, you've got to actually stop swearing, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop sleeping around. Stop, they've got to stop all this stuff. 
Because if they don't behave like that, they can't be part of a church. So they've got to behave in a certain way. And then once that happens, they can belong. They can belong because then they're validated by the leaders of the church and the culture of the church. They're validated as being okay and they're in compliance with the beliefs and the theology and they're behaving in a reasonable way and they're meeting the behavioural expectations of the church and therefore then they can belong. They are part of the community. But I believe what Hudson Taylor modelled for us and what the kingdom is about and what Jesus modelled to us, if we really want to know what does it mean when Jesus says that my kingdom will come, my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then surely we should study the life of Jesus and we should say what we should ask the question, what happened when Jesus lived on this earth and how did he live the kingdom? Because he was the kingdom. He was bringing his kingdom. So we study the life of Jesus. We maybe we'll get an idea of what he's talking about when he talked about bringing the kingdom. And I can tell you there was plenty of cultural Christianity around Jesus too at the time. The first thing that happened when Jesus encountered anybody outside of the embrace of the cultural or the guardians of the cultural Christianity what happened? They were blessed. They were blessed. The first thing that happened, when people encountered Jesus, they were blessed. They were healed. He had conversations with them that really touched their lives. The disciples were so blessed that they just left everything and followed. And people were blessed. As soon as they encountered Jesus, they were blessed. He had, he had thousands and thousands of people flocking around him because of this blessing when they encountered Jesus. If every follower of Jesus in this church, in this world, if every follower of Jesus every morning prayed this prayer, Lord Jesus, I know there's somebody in this world today, in my world, in my circle of influence, that I'm going to meet today that you want me to bless. There's somebody I know because you've asked me to bless this world, to look beyond myself. So there's somebody. I know there's going to be somebody today. Lord, help me to be sensitive enough to your spirit to know who that is, to know who that is. And give me the courage, Lord, to be able to go and do what I need to do to respond to their need to, to bless them and Lord help me to be willing to sacrifice whatever I have to give up of myself and my things and my time and whatever I've got and, and help me to be able to do that so I can bless the people that, that you have chosen for me to bless. Lord help me to do that today. I'm going to be looking. If everybody in this church did that and everybody in the world who said they followed Jesus did that every day, I believe we would see a huge change in this world. Just that first thing, blessing. We actively journey through every day looking for someone to bless. Surely that would make a huge difference. The kingdom would invade our circle of influence. The second thing that should happen when somebody encounters the kingdom of God is that they should feel they belong. They should feel they belong in the kingdom. In Ephesians, Paul talks about a great mystery. He, he says, you know, there's this great mystery of the gospel. And, and he says it a couple of times. And he says, you know, but what I want you to know, before he even tells you, he says, but what I want you to know, if you read Ephesians, what I want you to know is that it's not my idea. It's been around since the beginning of time before me. This was God's idea and this has always been God's idea and it still is God's idea. It's not my idea. I'm not going to tell you about it yet, but you know, I'm going to tell you sometime about this thing. Now, obviously, what he's going to say is so radical that he has to convince people before he tells them that it's actually not his idea because if it was his idea, clearly they're going to reject it. So what is this radical thing that he keeps talking about? Not my idea, God's idea. What is it? He says, 
that this great mystery of the gospel, which he believes was hidden until the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom, the mystery that is so revolutionary is that the Gentiles, that is everyone else in this world apart from the Jews, the special people, the ones who have got it all right, they are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3.6. What's the great mystery? Everybody belongs. That's the great mystery. Everybody belongs in the, king, in the kingdom. The revolutionary truth of the gospel of Jesus is that he died for everyone and everyone belongs. Now, that's not universalism. It's just a fact of the gospel and the kingdom. But people, of course, have to choose whether they want to take that opportunity, make, take the offer that Jesus says, you belong, you belong. But... When people encounter the kingdom of God, they should have a sense of, I belong. I belong there. Jenny and I were involved in a church plant over in Colorado. We actually got involved in church and, and uh, when we were first there and we just got tired of, <laughs> of going through the motions and doing stuff. And so we went and got involved in a local church plant in a school. It was called Renovate. It wasn't even called a church. Um, and if you read through it, it said it's the church for the rest of us somewhere church for the rest of us, those who don't belong in a church. Maybe you belong here. Anyway, we got involved in that and in the year's time, in the year, in the first year we were involved, 120 people came to Jesus from unchurched backgrounds. So it was, it was quite an exciting thing to be involved in. And one day this guy came to our school that we were meeting in and I think somehow he'd worked out that if there's any blank space on his body, he needed to cover it with writing and pictures because he was completely covered in tats and then that wasn't enough. He stuck things in himself all over the place too. So um, here he was. He turns up and he sort of participates in what was going on and um, you know, we, we made it so that people didn't feel out of place when they were there. And Anyway, he came back the next week and the, the young pastor there who we were working with, Rusty, went up to him and was chatting to him and he said, oh, you know, tell us a bit of your story. He said, oh, well, I just got out of jail and, and uh, one of my mates, they don't call mates, one of my friends said, you've got to go to renovate. He said, what's a renovate? And they said, oh, it's a church thing. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, oh, so I came. He said, I've never been in a church before ever. And I never th- thought I would come. But he said, you know what? I came back again this week because I feel that I belong here. That's what he said. Now, if a guy that looks like that from that background, feels he belongs, and that's the kingdom. He felt he had a place there. And anybody who encounters the kingdom communities that are in this world today should feel they belong. They shouldn't feel judged or, or that there's not a place for them or they aren't behaving the right way. They should feel they belong. Immediately they should feel, and they should feel they belong because there's a community that embraces them and they, they're blessed and they're loved. The third thing that should happen is that they should believe. And it's not believe in an ideology or religion or a whole lot of precepts. It's actually just believe in Jesus. And it's simple. We want to introduce people to Jesus. And so it's a simple matter of here's Jesus, he's my friend, he's my saviour, he's God. And we just want you to know him. Now the Bible talks about him. 
and they might not any more apart from the bit of the Bible that talks about Jesus. But do they need to know the whole Bible and believe it's all the truth of God for them to come to faith and be part of the kingdom? The mandate of the gospel is to provide people with an opportunity to be a follower of Jesus. And so the next thing that should happen when they're being blessed and they feel they belong is they understand why they belong. Because of Jesus and they're introduced to Jesus. And then, and then they become, become all that Jesus has designed for them to be, not us. Our ultimate desire for those who come to the kingdom should be that they become what Jesus wants them to be, not what we want them to be. We need to trust God with the transformation of everyone. And I think one of the things that we've lost, maybe the, 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 maybe one of the things that we struggle with is that we, well, we don't even, I don't know, we might not believe that Jesus can transform somebody because we need to do it ourselves. And I've done this all my life. In fact, now I'm going to confess something to you. It's always good to confess to the church. Here goes. I'm a serial advice giver. I know you're shocked. I can see a look on your face. Yes, I am pretty ashamed about that, but I am an advice giver and I have to every day get up and say, yes, I'm an advice giver. I know I am an advice giver. I've got to work on that. Lord, help me to be not an advice giver because I've been that. And people come to me, I had young people all around me all my life, and particularly in my ministry life, they come along and say, David, what do you think about this? And I say, well, in my experience and this, you know, and it says in the Bible this and this and this and this is what you should do. This is how you should fix your life and this is the things in your life that I think should be fixed and this is where you should be behaving. And I would do it all the time. And one day when I was involved with this, uh, in, in, in the Notting Hill community, we really had lots of kids in our life. We had all kinds of troubled kids and we had a homeless kids program, all this sort of stuff. And we had some pretty troubled young people. And one girl in particular, Jenny and I, were trying to help and she had a heroin addiction. She became a follower of Jesus. And so I decided that she needed to get rid of her heroin addiction because, you know, it's the first thing that she needed to have modified in her behaviour was no more heroin. So we detoxed her in our home. It is a horrific experience to detox anybody who a heavy heroin user. She was vomiting blood on the floor at one stage. We didn't know. We thought she was going to die. And you take her to the hospital, and they didn't want to know. So we got her through that. Fantastic. About a month later, she found some old friends on the road and went out and shot herself up with heroin again. He said, "All right, we're going to work on this some more." Around about the same time. There was somebody in our church community that she found out about that had a really desperate need and they needed money. And the whole church knew about it. And nobody did anything about it. So she got the money that she had scrounged, I think stolen, for her next fix. And she went and gave it all to these people. And she couldn't get a fix and she was strung out. And I'm thinking... You know what? All these people in the church knew about this and they didn't do anything about it. This girl, who is meant to be so far away and all her behaviours modified, actually demonstrated the kingdom principle better than anybody else in this church. Who am I to come along and start to work out what needs to be fixed in her? I've got to trust Jesus with this. And I think what we need to do is trust Jesus with the transformation of people 
And so often we try to modify their behaviours. Now, if they invite us to help them, that's fine. But now I have disciplined myself and I spend a lot of time in Youth for Christ teaching this. So when a young person comes to you and says, what do you think? The best answer is I don't know. I don't really know about that. Let's go look in God's word, see if we can discover what Jesus says about it. Why don't you go and read the Bible? I'll go read the Bible. We'll pray about it. You talk to Jesus about it. We'll come back together and we'll see what he says. Now, if we did that, what happens? The next time somebody is in trouble and I'm not there, they don't have to go and find somebody to tell them what to do. They actually go, oh, I'll just go read the Bible and I'll pray to Jesus and Jesus will have the answer. I don't need to see, I don't need to go and see David. He's not here. I, 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 me and Jesus. We can probably work this out. But if I have this continued program of behaviour modification, then they're going to go and say, well, I haven't got David, so I'll go and ask somebody else. One of my friends will know. And often the friends don't know. Or they go and they read a magazine or they go and look online or they go somewhere else and they often don't find the right answer. And what we are trying to do is control these people and build them into the people we think they should be. And Jesus constantly had conversations with his disciples. I'm sure you remembered if you read the Bible where the disciples came along and said, Jesus, why are you saying this to this person? What are you doing? What are you, why haven't you fixed this person? Why are you going to fix that? Why aren't you going to do this? Because Jesus is totally unpredictable because he knows us like nobody else and he knows what needs to be fixed first. And that girl with the heroin addiction had some horrific stuff that had happened to her. I mean, raped by her father, a whole lot of other stuff that needed to be dealt with. Eventually, Jesus put his finger on it and started to sort it out and she finally came and talked to me about it. And that was the issue that needed to be fixed before everything else could be fixed. I didn't know that. I was fixing the immediate presenting behaviours. Now, we've got to allow a place in our communities and our kingdom the kingdom that we live, we've got to allow a place for people just to work it out with Jesus. And I think our job in discipling people is to help them to get closer to Jesus. It's that simple. Isn't that simple? I mean, it's just so much easier. It takes a great burden off your shoulders if you don't have to fix everybody. All we have to do is get them closer to Jesus. Now, maybe we need to be closer to Jesus so we can get other people closer to Jesus because Jesus should be part of our life so much that people meet him whenever they meet us. But if it's just a simple matter of helping people to get closer to Jesus, it transforms their life. He transforms their life. He has the power of transformation. We have such a tendency to want to recreate people in our own image that we get in the way of them being recreated in the image of God. Uh, If you want to know more, I've just scratched the surface and I'm going to leave you a lot of questions and probably... You're wondering where on earth is Jesus Jesus in all of this. Uh, but he is. And, and when you start reading with that kingdom perspective, you get challenged again. And I suggest that you go read the, the Gospels to, to really find out. But if you do want to know some more, I've got a book. I've written it uh, for this purpose, to talk about the kingdom. It's called Kingdom Come. And I've got some here today. They're $10 if you want one. Or if you haven't got any money or you can't afford it or you don't want to pay for it, I'll just give it to you, okay? You don't have to pay for it. And I've got some here, if you want to know some more. Why don't we pray? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you. You're here. I know you're here, and I know you love us, and you so much want us to share your kingdom with this world. And I just pray that you'll help us to do that effectively and not get in the way, but also be willing to be the people that we need to be so that others know about your kingdom, know you, and are transformed by your kingdom. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.